Whenever we um, preach from the book of John, it's, it's more difficult than you might think. Because John, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is written to be almost to be consumed at one setting. It is very, very specific. Now, you know from our study that Matthew is heavily, heavily um, nuanced toward the Jewish mindset, toward Israel. That's why you read in Matthew so many times, uh, such and such happened that it might be fulfilled, which was written by the prophet. It was a strong case for the Jewish community. Um, uh, Mark and Luke, <clears throat> excuse me, are written for Gentile mindsets, especially Luke, uh, written to kind of a worldview uh, because of the uh, influence of, of Luke and the way he would present the gospel. The gospel of Mark is really, uh, historians tell us, and it's, it's pretty well provable, that the gospel of Mark is really, it could be called the gospel of St. Peter. Mark was a recorder of, of Peter's stories and sermons. And um, even though Mark did the writing, it was the preaching of St. Peter. But John is its own animal. Uh, John, um, it, it, 92% of John is not in the other Gospels. John is written not for Gentile only, not for Greek only, not for Jew only, but John is a theological gospel, and he says, I have taken the approach that you might believe. Now, that's, of course, what Matthew, Mark, and Luke wanted. But John says, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and in believing him, you might have life through his name. John talks about Jesus before his birth. And John talks about his glory, but at the same time, the gospel of John probably only covers about 12 days. Other than that, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Other than that first 14, 15 verses of the first chapter, John probably only covers about 12 days, certainly less than two weeks. And John is wired to give us seven special signs. Now, uh, John realizes, and he wants us to realize, that Jesus did more than seven miracles. In fact, John wrote these words, I suppose that if everything Jesus said and done were to be written, he said the world itself would not be able to contain the books that should be compiled. Now, I don't think he was saying literally that the world couldn't hold the books. He was just saying, this is just a very small slice of the pie. But John selected seven signs under the leadership of the Holy Spirit to bring the theological presentation of Jesus to the front. And that's very important. Uh, for instance, um, the seven signs are these. I'm not going to preach about this. It's in your notes. You don't need to write it down. <coughs> Excuse me. But the first special sign was turning the water into wine. And this shows that Jesus is master of quality and creation. The second special sign was the healing of the nobleman's son. And this teaches us that we ought to believe because Jesus is the master of distance. 
No distance in prayer. The third special sign is the one we're going to talk about today, the healing of the man at Bethesda, that Jesus is the master of time and hopelessness. Here is a man that had been bound for 38 years. I love the way the chosen deals with it. I don't want to ruin that for you. But when the man who was healed at Bethesda in the series, The Chosen, is interviewed, the rabbis tell him to quit pacing back and forth. And he says, no disrespect meant, rabbi, but he said, I have been unable to do this for 38 years. I'm not going to stand still. And Jesus showed that he was the master of time and hopelessness. The fourth sign was the feeding of the 5,000. And it shows that Jesus is the master of, of quantity and provision. The fifth sign, Jesus walking on the water, he's master over natural law. The sixth sign was the healing of the man born blind. Shows us that Jesus is the master over misfortune and circumstances. And then number seven was the raising of Lazarus, that Jesus is master over death itself. Now, when you look at John, you understand John's written from a different perspective. John is not just telling a story. When you read the gospel of John, there are seven encounters where the Holy Spirit reaches into your heart and says, you must learn this about Jesus. And this is evidence that demands a verdict. John's different in other ways. If you just had Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we would have no idea how long the ministry of Jesus was. If you just read those three gospels, it would look like Jesus did everything he did in one year. But John tells us about three, if not four, Passovers. So we know that the ministry of Jesus covered at least three to three and a half to four years. So John is this special book. You say, well, yeah, you've got me discouraged. Let's just go on home. No, 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 no. I'm telling you, we've got to do some, um, some deep digging, but we've got to dig fast. We're going to lift this story out of the mystery and we're going to lift it out of the context that we really need the whole gospel of John in order to understand it accurately. And as we look at this message today, the healing at the pool of Bethesda, I want you to understand this, by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is about the recovery of hope. The recovery of hope. Not the giving of hope, the recovery of hope. I found that the problem most Christians have to bear up under is not that they are, are new to hope, well, you know, give me some hope. They have had hope and they've lost it. And hope needs to be recovered. Now we're going to touch on five dynamics and we're going to cover them very quickly. We're going to talk about the pool. We're going to talk about the angel that supposedly stirred up the pool. We're going to talk about the man himself, about Messiah and the Pharisees. Now, um, you're going to find something else at the end of your notes. I think you've got it on there, a picture. You, you, is that picture on your notes? Are we able to put it on the screen? If, if not, yeah, there we go. Um, that is um, St. Anne's Church, the, the big church that you see there. It was built during the Middle Ages. But if you see that fence, when you walk out of St. Anne's, you come to the fence and you look out over the pool of Bethesda, which is dry now. But the, the mysterious thing is that this was not even discovered until the 1950s. 
archaeologists found it because there was a church built over it. In fact, there are a lot of holy sites in, in, uh, in the Holy Land that the best way they felt they could protect something is to build over it. Um, that's why to see a lot of holy sites, you have to go down uh, and see something that's been covered. Um, the place where Jesus prepared the meal and talked to Peter about, uh, do you love me more than these fish? And he asked him three times, you know, do you love me? They did it right. I love it. At that place, the rock that history says is where that happened. And Jesus fed the, the disciples. Uh, you go into the church and the church is built around it. Uh, our church, you come into the welcome table, that church, you come into the, to the stone. But this was covered. Um, in fact, uh, it, it was in my lifetime that it was uncovered. It's dried up now. But if you, um, if you walk down, uh, it, most tourists just stop there at the fence. But if you go around, you can walk down into the pool and there is a, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, um, when you put something on the wall? Plaque, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I, I forget all my theological words sometimes. <laughs> but there's a plaque uh, at one of the special porticos saying that uh, according to the best record of history, as far as I can tell, this was the place that Jesus came down to the pool and, he, and healed the man at Bethesda. Now, it's dried up now. Um, there's two theories behind it, and I'm not trying to bore you with this. I'm trying to, to, to hit it really quickly. Uh, that simply ge the geography has changed and um, the, the pool changed its flow. We know that happened at Caesarea Philippi because of an earthquake. We think that's what happened at Golgotha. An earthquake occurred and some of the features were changed. But at any rate, it's dry now. Others, the other theory is that it was a channeled pool that was a reservoir, okay? But at any rate, it's dry. It has been dry for a long time. A church built over it. And when the church was excavated, they found the five columns, uh, five porches underneath. This is Bethesda. Now, okay, let's go back to the outline. Um, we, we are going to, to look at these dynamics very quickly, but where I want us to focus is on, is on the man, okay? Um, at this, and, and you say, Pastor, why do we have to dig fast? Why do we have to dig deep? Because we also have to deal with a story that some of you don't have in your Bible, depending on which version you have. Depending on the version you have, verse four is missing because it says an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. That's not in most of your Bibles. And we want to talk about that uh, for just a moment today. <coughs> Let's read the text. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We don't even know which feast this was. It was probably either, either Passover or um, the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, so much background we could get into. We won't, we won't uh, I started to say I won't bore you with that. I don't think it would be boring. We just don't have time. Um, but now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. And then there's that questionable verse four. 
An angel went down at a certain time, the pool stirred up the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well from whatever disease he had. Okay, now all versions pick up with number five. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to them, here's one of those questions, you know, <coughs> you hear the question and you want to say, Jesus, what are you thinking? You know, it's like asking a fat man, do you want a Butterfinger? You know, <laughs> why do you even ask some questions? You say, why would you say that? Because that's my favorite. <laughs> do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? And what appears to be a silly question by Jesus is immediately justified and shows the wisdom and discernment of the question because the man does what most people who are hurting do. He answers a question, but not the one being asked. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. So not only was it a feast, it was on the Sabbath of the feast. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And here's a man that hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. And the religious authorities are only concerned that he picked up a mat because it was against the rules. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now, apparently at that point, he found out Jesus' name and the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, let's look at a central truth. True, complete healing. And I realize this message today may be very difficult for us who believe in the miraculous power of Christ. But true, complete healing may necessitate a work on three levels, spiritual, physical, and even psychological. True and complete healing. Physical miracles often need more depth than we allow for. It really does. We are so focused on getting relief from the pain that the work stops right there. When God still wants to do something, oh, he's the healer of all manner of sickness and disease. We believe that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I know what it's like to be healed by the supernatural power of Jesus Christ. But we sometimes stop when the pain stops, not understanding that God is wanting to do something deeper in us. And it's not necessarily that there is a sin in our life that caused the sickness. I know there are some theologians and there are some churches that say that all sickness is caused by something you've done wrong. 
I know we've through the years we've had people go off to healing schools and they're told there that if you have this infirmity, it's because of this. If you have this disease, it's because of this. And you come back and everything from cancer to Rocky Mountain spotted fever to ingrown toenails is a result of some sin in your life. And loved ones, I want to tell you, there's nothing like that teaching in scripture even remotely. You say, well, can't sin cause sickness? Of course it can. That's how sickness got started in the first place, was sin. But do not fall into that trap of foolishness, a works mentality that says everything that's wrong with me is a result of a sin I've committed, and if I don't get healed, it's because my faith is not right. That's garbage. It's trash. And it's one of the last strongholds that I think will be brought down in the coming revival because we've made healing nothing more than a work of works. Well, I didn't, I got more amens than I thought. I probably should stay there a little bit longer. But even in the days of Jesus, even before that, infirmity was misunderstood because people couldn't look past the physical issue. If a family didn't have a child, if they were barren, it's because God had cursed them. God was unpleased with them. And we find out from Scripture that that's not the case at all. God sometimes allows things to touch our lives to give venue for the glory of God to be made manifest. Um, now, you say, well, it must have been something going on because this man committed a sin and picked up his mat. In fact, I have a pastor friend that said, no, the law stands. The law stands. He should not have picked up his mat. And when Jesus said, don't commit any more sins or a, or a worse thing will come upon you, Jesus was telling him, you shouldn't have picked up your mat on the Sabbath. Well, first of all, that's not true. Jesus told him to pick up his mat. And loved ones, I know it sounds like I'm picking a fight today, and that's why I waited, you know, for Corey to sit on the front row <laughs> so he can handle all of this. But, uh, loved ones, I want to tell you, we have got to stop. Uh, we have got to stop treating the teaching of the rabbis as the teaching of Scripture. And we've got to stop being fascinated by the oral teaching, which is fascinating, I mean, I've got a copy of the Talmud in my library. I'm fascinated by Jewish teaching. But before we get so wrapped up in Jewish teaching and Jewish tradition, we need to understand is that that's what got Jesus so angry is the elevation of the oral law to the position of the written law. It was forbidden to carry your mat on the Sabbath, but it was not from the word of God. It was from the teaching of the rabbis. And we've got to understand that. We've got to stop being, and, and don't get me wrong, I, I love those that have insight. I love people like Jonathan Kahn. I love them with all my heart. But we are groupies that keep whatever sounds new to us. We're like the Athenians. We just lean into that and we'll say, well, what that scripture really meant was da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Nothing. And I say that's baloney. We can have insight, but we don't. I, I refuse to believe that the church has existed for 2,000 years stupid about what God's talking about. 
Well, okay, let's go on. Corey, don't, don't talk anymore about that, please. Uh, let's talk first of all about the pool. The pool was probably an intermittent, intermittent spring. Uh, it is possible the bubbling was, there's three theories. One, some texts say that it was the angel stirring up the water. Uh, others say, no, that was a legend that was taught that it was probably a, a warm spring that bubbled up and that some people with minor uh, ailments had found relief from, from bathing in the warm springs. We don't know if that's true or not. Or it was possible that when the sluice gate was opened, it just caused a reaction and water bubbled up as the, as the pressure and the, uh, and the depth of the water changed. Um, I want, to, I want to say this, and I want you to listen to me. Um, it was, we know it was used at least during Roman history as a, as a mikveh or a place of ceremonial cleansing. We know that from history, not from scripture. Um, we also know, now don't, don't let me lose you here. We also know, Corey, tell him to pay attention. We also know that uh, uh, Asclepius or the God of healing uh, there was a um, pagan god that was honored at this pool, uh, and the Greeks and the Romans, using pagan theology, dedicated the springs to their gods, and there are those that believe that the Jews just accommodated the teaching of the Greeks and the Romans, but that it, was, it meant house of mercy or house of grace or house of healing. Now, that was the pool, okay? You say, Pastor, what do you believe? Um, I, I'm, I'm coming to that. Was there an angel that stirred up the water and the first one in got healed? Well, let me say this, and you, this is where if you don't hear me, you'll, you'll spend hours writing an email to me that is not necessary. There is absolutely no debate about God's power. Uh, God can use an angel to stir up water. God can, if God can use a donkey to talk, God can use anything that he created. I do not have any doubt whatsoever that God can stir the water and whoever comes to the water first is healed. I, this is not an issue about God's power. Number two, there is no debate, not only about God's power, but there's no debate about the truth and accuracy of Scripture. We believe that every word of Scripture is true. We believe that every passage in God's Word is, 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 is accurate. It's a supernatural book. But there is considerable debate about textual variants. Let me give you just a real quick Boy, I know it sounds like I'm talking down. We believe in the authority of Scripture. We believe every word is inspired by God. We don't believe the Bible's a book of stories and there's just some hidden truth in the stories. We believe that the words are chosen by the Holy Spirit. But we believe that what is infallible is what we call the autographs or the original texts. And we know two things. We know that as the Scripture is translated from, from uh, and the Bible is written in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, 
and Greek, Greek in the New Testament primarily, Hebrew in the Old Testament primarily, we know that when it's translated into other languages, sometimes a word-for-word -word translation is difficult. So we realize that there are differences of translations and there are different uh, uh, ways that certain passages, I don't believe there is anything of any consequence that's questionable, but we do understand that our responsibility is to find the best versions of that Old Testament text and that New Testament text available. And there are some that have been editorialized. There are some frailties and many scholars that I happen to agree with do not believe that verse 3 was part of the original text. They believe it was an editorial note, okay, that this is why people were there. They believed that an angel stirred the water. I, I, I don't believe it for a couple of reasons, not because I don't think God has power, not because I don't think God's word is true. I think this is a textual variant. That's, number one, it's not found in the best manuscripts, not found in the best manuscripts. Uh, uh, number two, it doesn't seem like God to us to create uh, a system where he pits his people against each other to see who can get to the water first and everybody else loses. Doesn't even sound like God. Um, there's no evidence that that ever took place. We have no record of anybody ever being healed at the waters. I believe that this was a note that some scribe put down and it got interposed into the text, but it's not in the best manuscripts. You say, well, I, I just believe it. Praise God. I believe it. Okay. Okay. You can still go to heaven. I can still go to heaven. I don't want to spend tomorrow answering your email. Okay. I think the best manuscripts don't have that. And if even if it is part of the text, I think it's to be understood as an explanation of why the people were there. Okay, let's move on. So, because you're already tense. Now, you say, well, pastor, there's, there's, there's all kinds of places. There's all kinds of texts that have omissions. Yeah, there's a difference though. Don't be upset about a manuscript not having a passage of scripture because 99% of the time when somebody says, well, that's not in some of the old texts, it's because we don't have the, the entire text. One of our best uh, Old Testament texts of the book of Genesis doesn't have Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You say, well, so maybe that's not true. No, it's because you look at the manuscript and chapters 1, 2, and 3 have rotted away. It's not that they weren't included in the text. It just means the text that we took it from was in bad condition and we don't have every page of it. Am I making sense? Okay, I think, how about Brown Chapel? Are you guys okay over there? All right. The point I'm trying to make is it really doesn't matter if that happened or not, because I don't want you to get upset over, well, was it in the text or was it not in the text? I believe God can do anything he wants, any way he wants to do it. I believe God's true. God's word is true from cover to cover, but there are textual variants. Okay. Uh, when we pray the Lord's prayer, 
There are a lot of scholars that say that last phrase, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. They say that was not part of the original, and that may be true. They say that it was added by the church as a conclusion of the prayer. That may be true, but I want to tell you, it's a good prayer. It's a good prayer, and it does not negate anything. Okay, let's go on because uh, I'm worried for Corey. Now let's talk about the man. This is the issue. This is the issue. Not the stirring of the water, not the history of the pool. And the only reason I went there is because I knew that some of you would say, this is not in my Bible. Okay, I wanted to explain it. Here's the man. Here's the issue. He was a paralytic of 38 years. We don't know if he was born crippled and was 38 years old, had been infirm all of his life. We don't know if an accident happened to him. He might have been 60 years old and had been injured as a young man. We just don't know. But for 38 years, he had been unable to walk. And what I want to point out about this man is that he had become as hopeless in his thought processes as he was in his legs. The, the greatest infirmity was not that his legs didn't work. The greatest infirmity is that when Jesus says, do you want to be well? He immediately starts telling what people had done or had not done. And it was everybody else's fault that he was not well. He was trapped in expectations he was angry at what others had failed, had done or had failed to do. <coughs> now, loved ones, I want to bring you to the table because I know that a lot of us are crippled, maybe not physically, but we're crippled emotionally. I said that 2020 was a year designed by God to show us what we are and to show us where we are. But God is working now to bring us to the place that we begin to move forward. And I believe that this last year is a moment like the moment at the pool of Bethesda. And I want to present something that sounds radical to you. Sometimes we may be healed and remain broken. Sometimes we may forgive, but we're not fully free. I want to tell you, I have seen this. I know what it's like personally to be in bondage. I know what it's like to need a work of deliverance. I know what it's like to need the supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit to come upon me and set me free from my mindset and from my sin and from old ruts of the mind, strongholds in my heart. But I want to also tell you this, there are some people that God shows grace to them and they say, praise God, I'm free, I'm free. I've seen them run the aisles. I'm free, I'm free. And they're not freed from their prison. They've only moved to a larger cell. I've seen people say, God has done it. God has done it. And God has done this, but they're just in a halfway house. Because when real work of God takes place, it touches the whole man, spirit, soul, and body. Listen to me and know how much your pastor loves you. There's some of you that you are so angry because you live in continual offense. 
The church couldn't possibly do enough to make you happy. The pastors couldn't possibly do enough to remedy your discontent. That poor woman you married, everything is a mistake. No matter what she tries to do, it's not what you want done. That husband that tries to love you and provide for you, no matter how hard he works, he's never providing enough. The child is a constant disappointment. My parents are a constant disappointment. And we get so excited when Jesus touches something in us that's broken, but we walk forward carrying the brokenness of our soul and the brokenness of unforgiveness. And when Jesus says, do you want to be well? It's not as easy a question as we understand we are unsatisfied because we have a sense of mistreatment. 2020 showed that, whether it was racial or whether it was political or whether it was spiritual, nothing would satisfy some people. And any answer, any position, any attitude other than their own attitude was not enough. That's why you're as mad now as you were a year ago. That's why you're as broken now as you were a year ago. Because you celebrated light that was dawning, but the darkness in your soul has not been dissipated by the light. You're just like the man. Maybe I should say we're just like the man. At the pool of Bethesda, when the king of kings comes to us with the question, do you want to be made whole? All our focus is on is what someone has done to me or what someone has not done for me. You say, Pastor, why are you preaching like this? Because I don't want you to stay at the well or at the pool. I don't want you to miss the second part of the story where Jesus Jesus did what we thought was unthinkable and undoable. He heals a set of legs that haven't worked for 38 years. But Jesus sought him out. Jesus looked for him during a feast when there were, would have been, if it was one of the major feasts, there would have been over a million people in Jerusalem. And Jesus found him in the temple and said, listen, don't sin anymore or something worse can come upon you. You know what Jesus was saying? He was saying, listen, you are healed, you're well, this is marvelous. But listen, if you keep walking with the attitude that you manifested at the pool, something far worse than crippled legs can happen to you. You say, well, pastor, I, you tell us we're saved by grace. We are saved by grace. And this has nothing to do with salvation. This has nothing to do with the miracle God has done for you. The question is, are you really going to be set free? Or are you going to be content with a halfway house? Now, let me put it to you this way. I've fallen into this trap myself. I... I, I'll find God doing something significant for me. And if I don't understand humility, if I don't understand 
what God is doing in me in deep places, I will suddenly become very arrogant because God healed me, but not them. God delivered me, but not you. We, we, become, we become aware when we read this story that healing is layered and when God does something for us, guys, I feel like I'm just not connecting here. Are you, you okay with me here? Okay. When God does something for us, we've got to realize that we must humble ourselves to let him do everything he wants to do. See, and it's difficult when Job lost what was unthinkable, all of his children, everything that he owned. It's, it appears that all he had left was his wife, was his wife which I, I shouldn't say all he had left was his wife, but <laughs> he had a wife and, and, and 10 children and, and, the, and the children-in-laws. All of that's taken away. His riches are taken away. It seems that the only possession he has is broken pottery that he could scrape his wounds with. His friends came to him and they did very well for 10 days. They came, they sat with him, and the Bible says for 10 days they said nothing. Loved ones, that's a prerequisite to grieving and helping. Don't come in with your theology. Don't come in with your advice. Come in, sit with those that suffer, and let them grieve. I remember when I was a young pastor, I, 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 Ramona can correct me, but I think it was the first time we ever had a death in the church of someone um, that was close to a church member. I mean, I, we had experienced that as associates, but now I'm in charge, I'm the pastor. And I remember the lady who lost a very dear loved one. I went over to the house, I had, I had grieving 101 memorized. And I sat down and everything I said was true. I took her by the hand. I was patting her hand. I was telling her everything that was right. And she had a habit. I, I was, you know, and I, I'm a hugger and a kisser, but I was, I was a little nervous about it in those days I, because I'd never been around a kisser before that I was pastoring. And every time she saw me, she'd give me a kiss on the cheek. And, you know, I, I'd gotten used to it. And, and I was giving her the speech and she took my, she put her hand over my hand and she leaned over and I knew what was coming. It was a, it was a kiss that she always gave me. She gave me a little kiss and looked at me and she said, Pastor, would you do something for me? I said, I'd do anything for you. She said, would you just be quiet? I learned something very important that day. Just because you know something, you're not under contract to share it. I learned something very important that day. That sometimes the best thing you can do is just grieve with somebody that's grieving. And when somebody asks you a question, it's usually a rhetorical question. When someone says, why am I so sick all the time? Don't start listing possible causes. <laughs> but
But they began to talk. And you know what Job did? Job began to talk back. And before we get deep into the book of Job, in this moment of suffering that started out so nobly, Job becomes self-righteous. You don't understand me. You've not been through what I've been through. If I heard anything during 2020, it was you can't understand me and you can't know what I've been through and you aren't like me, so you don't have the right perspective. And I think the church world as a whole in America failed miserably. 2020 divided the church. It didn't unite the church. Except those that understood the process that I'm talking about. Let's talk about the Messiah because you, 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 you need to go home and take some medicine. <laughs> Help you with this headache that I've caused. Loved ones, I want to tell you, this story is about, not about the pool, not about what an angel did or didn't do. The story is about a man that had suffered so long he lost hope. And you see, a lot of times heaven will meet earth and the most important thing we can take note of is what comes out of me. What comes out of me? You know, to one woman that had suffered for 12 years, she was ceremonially unclean. That meant her husband not only was to not have relations with her, he was not even to touch her. Her children could not touch her. She couldn't hold her little ones. She was unclean. But what was her attitude after 12 years of that? She said, when Jesus came, she said, if I can just, just touch his garment... If I can just touch the fringe. And, and you know what? Not only did it work, but the Bible says a couple of chapters later that everybody that saw Jesus learned from her and said, if we can just touch the fringe of his garment, we'll be healed. You're either going to be that kind of person in your pain or you're going to be like this man. Well, I could be well if somebody would helped me. I could be well if somebody had moved me closer to the pool. And I know, guys, I know it's tragic, but you've got to make that decision. Are you going to spend the rest of your life in misery because somebody did you wrong or somebody didn't do you right? Or are you going to say, all I need, if I can just that little fringe. Oh. Jesus, let's talk about the Messiah. Jesus approached with a question, as I said, that seems foolish, but this is a better way of us understanding it. Jesus was not saying, do you want to be well? Jesus was saying this, do you have the will to be made whole? It's not easy because the grind of hopelessness can distort our perceptions of truth and reality and create a multi-layered prison for our souls. Shallow responses seldom produce deep results. And it is possible to be healed on the outside and remain utterly broken on the inside. Now the Pharisees, they don't even deserve a spot today. So I'm just going to mention them in passing. This miracle, the Pharisees were there. You find Pharisees in odd places. You find them at the pool looking at the sick on the Sabbath day. Why? 
Jesus' disciples go through a field of grain in the Sabbath day and they do, you know, on the Sabbath what they're not supposed to do according to the law of the rabbis. You know, they're, they're rubbing the grain in their hand to get something to eat and out pop Pharisees. What are you guys doing? The miracles of God are to reveal what's in our heart. The presence of God is to reveal what's in our heart. That's why I'm saying you better, you better do more. I, in the name of Jesus, as your pastor, you need to do more with 2020 than just say, thank God it's over. What changed about you? What was exposed about you? What victory did you cling to? Because we've all heard this, but it's got to become part of our lives. It, there's two things that are the real dynamic of your life. There's what happened to you. And then there's what happens in you. And they've both got to be answered. They've both got to be understood. The Pharisee's heart was exposed. Okay, let's go to the Christian life lessons. There's only what? Three of them? Three of them. There's always a problem with barren institutionalism. You know, that's why people say, oh, I don't like religion. I just love Jesus. And, and guys, I can't tell you the trouble that causes me because the same imbalance that caused you to be hurt by religion causes you to now become a rebel with a cause. Institutions can be helpful by giving us tracks to run on. And, and I think institutions are needed. Jesus gave us the church with structure and order. And I think you're making a terrible mistake to walk away from the church and say, I'm just as close to God on the golf course. But I do understand that meaningless, barren institutionalism, if the church is not true to its calling, it is useless. Jesus said it's like salt that has lost its savors. It's good for nothing than to just be trodden over by man. We've got to understand that rules are timely and principles are timeless. We need to understand that Jesus knows how burdensome a system can be because the word tells us that we create burdens which neither we or our ancestors were able to bear. So we've got to balance grace and truth so that we produce life instead of death. You know, it's, it's interesting to me, in an attempt to honor the springs, in an attempt to honor the site of this miracle, a church hundreds of years ago, hundreds of years ago, built a church covering the springs so that the springs were lost. The, the place was lost to the public and was not uncovered for centuries. Sometimes we can be so diligent about what Jesus did that we don't make room for what he wants to do now. The second thing I want to say is that it's very easy to misunderstand the relationship of sin to sickness and thereby mislabel the cause of trouble. This man received a miraculous healing. His was one of seven special signs that is given to bring people everywhere to repentance. But this man was in danger of allowing sin to pull him into a worse state than before. In the case of the man born blind, it appears that sin was totally unattached to his illness. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
we, we tend to think if I can just get the miracle, that's what I need. But what is the residual working of the miracle? Here's the last thing. Physical healing must never be separated from the call to spiritual and psychological wholeness. Loved ones, what has happened to you? Were you raped by a relative? Were you, were you signaled out for injustice because of the color of your skin? Were you cheated in a business deal? The, the list goes on and on. That matters and it's very important what happened to you. But now in 2021, this is the year where you decide what happened in me and what am I going to do from this point forward? My daddy was my hero, always was, always will be. My dad, like any dad, wasn't perfect, but I, I, he was my hero. He was strong physically. He was strong in so many ways. And I want to, I want to just say one more thing. This is not part of the message. This is just a warning. We are in an age where people are living longer than they've ever lived. I mean, since the antediluvian days. And people don't always live well. Dementia, Alzheimer's, physical infirmity. I want to caution you, just as somebody that's gone through this with my parents, I, I want to caution you, don't let your focus on your loved ones be on the weakness of their last days. Sometimes we laugh and make jokes because we're so hurt we don't know what else to do but laugh. I'm not saying that's not permissible and sometimes it's just funny. But I want to tell you something. We are, we are losing something if the way we deal with our elderly parents and elderly relatives is to just lament what they've become. We need to remember what they were. And sometimes it's frustrating. My mother had Alzheimer's and she loved Justin so much because Justin was the pastor of this church and I was only the Sunday school superintendent, but he let me preach whenever I wanted to. I don't think my mother ever understood I was pastor of the church. My daddy fell in 1967 at work, shattered his arms, lost 90% of the use of this hand and 60% uh, of the use of this arm. It was, it was a tragic accident. I remember going into the emergency room and uh, doctors were speaking to my mom and I was with my mom and this is what they said. My dad was, was friends with him. He had a good friend relationship with, with two of the doctors that were in the room. They were showing him an x-ray and they said, they said, Cliff, we need, there's one thing we can do and you will be as good as new in a few weeks. And he said, what? He said, this, they said, this hand wrist is so shattered right here. Let us take this hand off. And if you don't let us take this hand off, you're going to have trouble after trouble after trouble. 
But if you let us take it off, you'll be fine. You'll be back to work. Everything will be great. You'll be as strong as ever. And my dad was just a big, strong guy. And my dad said, nope, don't do that. And they began to talk about other options. And I, I'm, I'm not blaming my dad. I'm not vilifying him. If, if I was in an emergency room and they said, we want to take your arm off or your leg off, I doubt I would agree either. I'd say, try everything. That's what my dad did. And they went from surgery after surgery after surgery, steel pins, steel rods. And I know that surgery today and in, in orthopedics today is a lot different than it was back when Lyndon Johnson was president. I know that. But nothing worked. My, for years, my dad's hand would just suddenly start bleeding. And it, it, it was horrible. It was horrible. And it created one problem after another. I think my dad had 20 some odd surgeries trying to save that hand. And, they, and I remember when I was probably 18 years old, I went with him to the doctor and he said this. My dad said, I can't bear this pain. I can't do this. I can't do the other. I remember my dad trying to open a refrigerator and couldn't get the refrigerator open and putting his head against it and just crying. And the doctor said this with me in the room. He said, Cliff, let me cut this blankety blank hand off. It's caused you nothing but trouble for a decade. Let me cut it off. It's not too late. And my dad said, no. I want everything to be done that can be done. He said, we've done everything that can be done. And the doctor finally said, the only thing we can do is give you pain medicine that's going to make you a zombie the rest of your life. My dad said, I'll take the pills. Now, in the graciousness of God, a few years later, the, the, the worst of that subsided and, and the pain generally stopped. But by then my dad had so many difficulties in his body caused from this that he was never a whole man again. I, I, I feel that my last 20 years with my dad were robbed from me, from my children. Oh, my, my children know him and they love Papa, but Papa was never what I knew him to be. They never knew him as a strong man. My wife never knew him as a strong man. Now, he loved the Lord. He's in heaven. I have no questions about that at all. But loved ones, I'm opening up and being very vulnerable to you. And I wouldn't have said these things if he and my mom weren't gone. But I want you to know it may not be your arm, but it's that unforgiveness it's that offense. It's that shallowness. It's that sense of I've been done wrong or I haven't been done right. Are, are you hearing me? Corey, are we right? Tell them we're right. <laughs> Loved ones, you know I'm not talking down to you. You know nobody loves you like I love you. Well, I got to give Jesus kudos, I guess. But, but I, 
I am so hurt because we've gone, we've gone through so much. It's like we've been delivered from Egypt and we still bellyache for leeks and onions. The question is, there's nothing the pool can do for you. The answer is not in a pool. The answer is not in Asclepius. The answer is not in what happened a long time ago. The answer is in what are you going to let Jesus do for you right now? Oh, I know, I know our politics have failed us. I, I know everything we've put our trust in seems to have failed us. Our courts aren't always houses of justice as we want them to be. I know that. But Jesus can touch you. Or you can wait for your candidate to stir the water. Or you can wait for your organization to stir the water. I think I'm going to put my bet on him. Father, I, I, I just pray I haven't blown it today. I, I know what you put in my heart. I don't know if I've said it well. I, I pray that I've represented you accurately. But Father, we're at that pool of Bethesda moment where we've waited so long for somebody to do something and they haven't done it. For somebody to understand something and they haven't understood it. And along comes Jesus. Along comes Jesus. We thank you for that. Lord, may our children know, may our children know that our trust is in you. In Jesus' name.